friends, we come to an altogether new section in the epistle to the Romans. The first major division that we have in Romans is the first eight chapters. That's doctrinal. Then we come to chapters 9 through 11. That's dispensational. And then we come to the last major division, 12 through 16. And that is actually duty. So you have doctrine, dispensational, and duty. And let me give another division for it. The first section, first eight chapters, the emphasis is on faith. Now we've come to a section, 9 through 11, hope. And then 12 through 16 is love. Or, let me again look at it maybe another way. We have in the first section, salvation. The second section, 9 through 11, segregation. Then service, chapter 12 through 16. So you have these three major divisions. Now the question arises, having concluded chapter 8, and Paul has put on this broad basis, salvation today is for the entire human race. The entire human race, because the entire human race are lost. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now there's an overture from God of salvation to everyone on one basis and one basis alone, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the whole thesis. Now the question arises, and some, of course, have attempted to dismiss this section by putting a parenthesis around it or calling it an appendix, and others minimize its importance by saying that it's not actually pertinent. Well, I want to say to you it's not only pertinent, but it's vital to the logic and doctrine of the epistle. It's important. There is a sense, I think, in which you can take chapters 8 and 12 and join them together as you would two boxcars. But you must remember that we're not making up a freight train in Romans if Paul wasn't doing that. What we have in Romans is not a freight train, but a flowing stream. And you cannot anymore take Romans 9 through 11 out than you could take out a middle section of the Mississippi River. If you did, you'd have trouble. Dr. Griffith Thomas has put it like this. The chapters 9, 10, and 11 are an integral part of the epistle, and they are essential to its true interpretation. Now, I think that there are certain grand particulars which reveal the significance of this section, and I want to speak to that for just a moment or two. There is the psychological factor, there is the historical factor, and there is the doctrinal factor. Now, first of all, notice the psychological factor. And this has to do, of course, with the personal experience of the Apostle Paul. And therefore, it's not exactly accurate, as we said at the beginning when we were quoting others, that Romans comes from the head of the Apostle and Galatians comes from the heart. And the thesis is the same. Well, actually, the heart, of the great apostle is laid bare 
here in the opening of chapter 9, in fact, all the way through this section. And he could say with great feeling here, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And there is a great gap, if you've noted, between chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 8, as we saw last time, closes on the high plane of triumph and joy in the prospect of no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But chapter 9 opens here on the low plane of despair and sorrow. And there's obviously a change of subject matter. And that brought about the heartbreak in the life of the apostle. And we're going to observe that when we get into this chapter 9. Then there is the historical factor. And that takes into account the unique position and problem in Paul's day. And modern interpretation today has failed largely to take into consideration this factor. The present-day church is for the most part Gentile. And the Jewish background has been all but forgotten. Men assume that the Old Testament promises are merged and dissolved into the church. The arbitrary assumption is that the church is heir to the prophecies of the Old Testament and God is through with the nation Israel. They had some time ago a prophetic congress over in Jerusalem. And it was rather amusing fact of the matter is, they thought it was going to be a very important thing and ended up as a tempest in a teacup. And it was something that many of the writers that wrote it up said that the city of Jerusalem did not even know it was taking place. And you could compare that to the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 when the whole city was shaken, I think is really rather arbitrary. And the fact of the matter is that half of those that were there had no place for the nation Israel in God's plan for the future, that God was through with the nation Israel. Well, my friend, if that was true, then why go to Jerusalem to have a prophetic congress? You just as well have it in Scapoose, Oregon, or Muleshoe, Texas, as to have it in Jerusalem. But you see, God's not through with the nation Israel. And though in the first eight chapters you might assume that, Paul's going to make it clear now, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? Paul answers that. Why, of course he hasn't. And I want to give you the statement of Dr. Stifler, and I'm reading now from him. It has been tacitly assumed in Christian interpretation that Judaism's day is over, that an elect, leveling church built on faith in Christ was the intent of the law and the prophets, and that it was the duty of all Jews to drop their peculiarities and come into the church. Such an assumption the Jew ascribed to Paul. It's strangely forgotten that the mother church in Jerusalem and Judea never had a Gentile within its fold that none could have been admitted, and that every member of that primitive body of tens of thousands was zealous of the law. They accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but abandoned none of their Old Testament customs and hopes. Christianity has suffered not a little in the continuous attempt to interpret it 
not from the Jewish, but from the Gentile point of view. The church in Jerusalem and not the church in Antioch or Ephesus or Rome furnishes the only sufficient historic outlook. Now, my friend, it's a very narrow view today to assume that God is through with the nation Israel. Paul's answered it. Hath God cast away his people? And the answer is a sharp negative, God forbid. And he's going to show that the promises that God made to the nation Israel are promises that are going to be fulfilled to that nation, and that God has made certain promises to the church, and that today he's calling out an elect people out of both Israel and the Gentiles. And that's exactly what that great Congress in Jerusalem in Acts 15 decided. I want to read that because this is so important. And this actually is the crux of the interpretation of prophecy today. Will you listen? After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this I will return. I'll build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I'll build again the ruins thereof. I'll set it up, that the residue of man might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God, are all his works from the beginning of the world. That's Acts 15, 13 through 18. Now, friends, James makes it very clear that God is calling out a people today to his name. When he concludes that, he'll remove the church from there. He'll turn again. And then God's not through with Gentiles. We're told that all the Gentiles at that time will turn to God. That is the kingdom that's to be set up on this earth. Now, that's the historical factor can't be ignored. Then we have a doctrinal factor, and that concerns the right dispensational interpretation and the sovereign purposes of God. Now, Paul's traced here in these first eight chapters the great subjects of sin, salvation, sanctification, all the way from grace to glory. In this age, nationality, ritual and ceremonies, have no weight before God. Faith is the only item which God accepts from man. Any person, regardless of race or conditions, can find mercy. Now, this does seem to level out the very distinctions made in the Old Testament. But Paul's going to answer that. Hath God cast away his people? The answer is, of course, he has not. And he began this epistle, you remember, in the 16th verse of the first chapter, that it's to the Jew first. And that means, I think, chronologically, it was given to the Jew first. Now, this section is a very important section. It may not deal with Christian doctrine, but it deals with the eschatological portion of the Bible, and that is the prophetic section that reveals that God is not through with these people. Now, let's come to this chapter. I spent this time in introduction because it is important. Now, in chapter 9, you have God's past dealings with Israel. 
In chapter 10, you have God's present dealings with the nation Israel. And chapter 11, God's future dealings with the nation Israel. It's very important to note here that Paul is dealing with the past history of the nation Israel in the function of God's purposes. And the reason for God's dealings with the nation in the past did not derive from their exceptional qualities or their superior efforts. On the contrary, all of God's actions are found in his own sovereign will. He functions through mercy in his dealings with Israel and all others. And I think in his dealings with you and with me. Martin Luther made this statement. Who hath not known passion, cross and travail of death, cannot treat of foreknowledge, election of grace, without injury and inward enmity toward God? Wherefore take heed that thou drink not wine while thou art yet a sucking babe. And this is strong medicine we're going to look at here. Now listen to Paul as we begin chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience in the Holy Spirit bearing witness with me. Now this seems to be a pretty formal introduction coming from the Apostle Paul. But you must remember, he's being accused at the time he wrote this, that he was an enemy of his own people. And we're told in Acts 23, 12, when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under curse, saying they had neither eaten nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, Paul uses an expression that's a favorite with him. He says, I tell the truth, I do not lie. And now in verse 2 he says that I have great grief of mind and continual pain in my heart. I think it's impossible for us today to appreciate adequately the anguish of Paul for his own nation, his patience in the presence of their persistent persecution is an indication of this. He knew how they felt. He knew how they felt toward Christ and the church and Christianity. For he once felt that way himself. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader. And he longed for them to come to Christ as he had. Now he's saying here, For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'd like to give you a different translation of that and then give you freely an interpretation of it. I'm giving now the translation. For I was wishing, but it was not possible, that I myself were cursed, that is, devoted to destruction, from the Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, the verse presents, I think, a real problem in translation. If you want it given freely, here it is, and I hope this will help us. For I was once myself a curse from Christ as my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, very frankly, I do not understand Paul at all if our authorized version has it accurately. Because this man has just said in chapter 8 that nothing could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now, our translation says, I could wish that I was a curse. 
Well, that's idle wishing, Paul. You can't be accursed. You've just told us that. And this, then, is academic. This is oratorical gesture you're making. And you're not sincere when you say a thing like this. But my friend, will you listen to me carefully? The Apostle Paul is always sincere. Apostle Paul didn't use oratorical gesture. So what is he saying here is this. He said, I once was accursed from Christ, just like my brethren are. And I am not using oratorical hyperbole here. I know I can't be accursed. And I want them to be in that position today, and I want them to come to know Christ. My friend, it's very difficult for you and me to estimate the measure of love that Moses and Paul had. Bengal calls our attention to that, by the way. Now in verses 4 and 5, he raises the question, who are Israelites? And he's going to deal with that. Who are Israelites? And we have Israel defined here. He says several things identify them. In fact, there are eight things that identify the Israelites. The first one that we have here, who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Now, number one, the adoption here was national, and it pertained to the national entity, and not, of course, to separate individuals. Now, the only nation that God ever called his son is the nation Israel. Back in Exodus 4.22, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, this is what God said to Moses, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And again in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are from the face of the earth. Now, friends, either God meant that or he didn't mean it. And if he didn't mean it, then I don't know why you believe John 3.16. But I believe in John 3.16, and I believe in Deuteronomy 7.6. God meant every word of it. And in Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. God speaks of the nation, not just individuals, but the nation as being his son. He never said that of any other. The adoption belonged to them. And then we're told of glory. And this means the physical presence of God was with them. It is manifested in the tabernacle and later in the temple. We were told in Exodus 40, verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They are the only people that have ever had the visible presence of God. And we don't have any visible presence of God today, and we need to remember that. Now, I know many years ago there was a man that put up a tent in Southern California, and one of the brags was that you can see angels walking on top of the tent. You'll see angels in the tent. Well, my friend, 
The minute he made a statement like that, I knew there was something radically wrong. But I think there was an explanation. They say that this man died an alcoholic. Well, I imagine that after you've had two or three drinks, you can see angels walking on tents. And he probably did. But I come back to my original statement. Only Israel had the visible presence of God. No other nation. The church doesn't have it. And no individual has it. Now, if you had a vision last night while you were asleep, my suggestion to you is do not say that God gave you a vision. He didn't. You just find out what you had for supper. and You will have the explanation of it all. God gave to them the glory, and that identifies them. Then he's given to them the covenants. That's the next thing. The third thing, certain covenants belong to the nation Israel. God has promised them. For instance, he made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with the nation. And he made a covenant with David, and his line would rule over not only these people, but the world someday. They've been given covenants. We've not been given anything but the new covenant. But they were given many covenants. They were promised a land. They were promised a people. These were covenants God made with them. And he never made these covenants, friends, with any other people. Now, God gave to them the law. That's the Mosaic law. And the Lord said to them in Exodus 19:5, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice and indeed keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, he says in Exodus 31:13, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep. For it's a sign between me and you, throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. That's to the nation Israel, you see. Now, somebody says to me today, why don't you keep the Sabbath day? Well, because I'm not Israel. And somebody says, well, did God ever change the Sabbath day? No, he never changed it, but he sure changed us. We now are in Christ. That's a new relationship they belonged to a nation back there, and he gave the law to them. Now, number five, the service of God. Now, they had to do with the worship of the tabernacle and later on the temple. They were to be a kingdom of priests. That's what he said in Exodus 19:6. He says to them, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, the nation failed God. But he didn't give up that purpose. He then took one tribe, the tribe of Levi. They had the service of the tabernacle and later on the temple. They will in the future, I think in the millennial kingdom, the nation Israel will be God's priest here upon this earth. Now we have the sixth point of identification, the promises. Now the Old Testament abounds with promises made to these people. He told Joshua, rise, go over this Jordan, and you're to possess the land. I was over there some time ago. I didn't cross it now. It wouldn't be safe to. You'd probably get shot at. But several years ago, I crossed it. But I didn't cross it because God gave a command to Joshua and to the children of Israel. And I never felt when I was there that any of that land belonged to me. 
In fact, most of it I saw I didn't want. Because there is a curse on that land today. When you hear the expression today, they're making that land blossom as a rose. They're doing wonders, friends. But there's a lot of it that just doesn't blossom like a rose yet and will not until he comes, whose right it is to rule. And then they have the fathers. Now, that refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the ones that have the fathers. They belong to them. And then we have the eighth point of identification. Christ the Messiah came according to the flesh. And this is something I think very important to see. He came to this earth, and he was a Jew. The woman at the well called him a Jew. Paul is careful to say that we know him no longer, though after the flesh. And he is, as Paul puts it, Christ who is over all. God bless forevermore. And that's the way Sandy translates this last clause here. Paul identifies Jesus as God. And to Paul, he's the God-man. The Word was made flesh. And that flesh, according to the flesh, Christ came of this nation. The woman at the well, I think, is in a better position to say who he was than some scholar sitting in New York City in a musty library, swivel chair. I don't think that he could speak with authority. I don't care how many books that he's read. The important thing is that the woman at the well says, How is it thou being a Jew askest drink of me, a woman of Samaria? That, I think, ought to make it clear. Then we come now to another section here in this ninth chapter. Israel now is identified. We've had before Israel defined. Now let's identify them in Paul's day and in our day also. Verse 6, "...not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel." That's a strange expression. "...for not all the offspring, the natural offspring of Israel, they are not the real Israel." In other words, the Jew in Paul's day raised the question as to why the Jew had not wholeheartedly accepted Christ since they were an elect nation. Isn't that a failure on God's part? And Paul had dealt with that partially back in chapter 3, you will recall, at the beginning of that chapter. Now, Paul is going to make a distinction between the natural offspring of Jacob and the spiritual offspring, and that always there's been a remnant, and that remnant whether natural or not natural, has been a spiritual offspring. And this is a distinction in the nation, Israel, and he's not even including Gentiles here at all. He's not talking about Gentiles at this particular juncture. The failure, therefore, was not God's, but the people had failed, and God's promises were unconditional. Now listen to him. "...neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children." But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, this is a devastating blow to the argument of those that were attempting to stand against Paul here. Now, this is verse 7. Now, if the seed therefore were reckoned on natural birth and natural birth alone, then the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Edomites, they'd all be included. They could say, and they do say today, a very fine Arab said to me down in Jericho several years ago, he said, I want you to know I'm a son of Abraham. 
I couldn't argue against that. He was. These all were physical offspring of Abraham. And to be a natural offspring of Abraham was no assurance that a person was the child of promise. And you'll recall, they said to the Lord Jesus, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's seed, you'd do the works of Abraham. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. He's a liar and the father of it. Verse 8 now, I'm reading. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In other words, the apostle here makes a clear distinction between the elect and the non-elect of Israel. They that are the children of the flesh, they're not the children of God, but the children of the promise are the ones counted for seed. Listen to Dr. Luke in Acts 21:20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they're all zealous for the law. Now, there were in Israel thousands that turned to Christ after his death and resurrection. They were the elect. And Paul always called them Israel. And you will even find that when you come to the book of Revelation, and our Lord is speaking to the churches, that's about the turn of the century. At that time, he says to them, Well, they do not even belong to a synagogue that worships me any longer. It's a synagogue of Satan. That is the language that is used, and it's strong. Now, will you notice verse 9? For this is the word of promise, At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, the children of the promise are not those who believe something. Isaac didn't believe before he was born. Isaac was the promised seed. God promised, and God made good. Now, we're getting down to where it's strong. But you follow us through, will you? Verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Now, Isaac and Rebekah. They're given as an illustration of this principle of the divine election. Listen to verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that called. Now, this verse is a parenthesis, but its truth, I think, here is of supreme importance. Now, some explanation may be offered for God's rejection of Ishmael. That's not possible in this illustration. Those boys were twins. God rejected the line of primogeniture, that is, of the firstborn, and he chose the younger. At that time, Jacob had done no good, and Esau had done no evil. It does not rest upon birth. That was identical. And it does not rest upon their character or their works. Paul makes the entire choice to rest upon the purpose of God according to election. He further qualifies this statement, that it's not a works, but it rests upon God who calls. And this calling here actually is not to salvation, though. Now, verse 12, "...it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger." Now, this is a quotation from Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three. 
and it was given before the boys were born into this world. Now, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, this is a quotation from the last book in the Old Testament. This statement was not made until the two boys had lived their lives and two nations had come from them, and those two nations had had, may I say to you, almost 2,000 years of history. A student once went to the late Dr. Griffith Thomas. He said, I'm having trouble with this passage where it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Dr. Thomas said to him, well, what's your problem? Well, he said, I can't understand why did God hate Esau. Dr. Thomas says, I'm having trouble with that passage too, but that's not my problem. My problem is, why did God love Jacob? That's the big problem, friends. Easy to see why God hated Esau. He's a rascal, and he's a godless fellow, and from him came a godless nation, filled with pride, turned their back upon God, wanted to live without God. I can understand why God rejected Esau, but why did God choose Jacob? It's by his sovereign will, my friend. Now, we come to another division here. The choice of Israel is in the sovereign purpose of God. Listen now carefully to me, my friend, because this is important today. Verse 14, what shall we say? Then is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. What do we say to this? Is there not injustice with God? Perish the thought. Let it not be. Now the answer, therefore, is a resounding no. Listen to me very carefully. The natural man rebels against the sovereignty of God. If anything is left to God to make the choice, man immediately comes to the conclusion that there's injustice. Why is that? There are those today that applauded some of the presidents we had a few years ago. And apparently today, and I don't know whether we'll ever get the truth or not, but apparently for quite a few years, there has been bad judgment made in our government. And as a result, thousands of boys died. And yet the man that received more votes than any man that's ever run for president. You know who put him in office? You put him in office, friends. It looks like there might have been bad judgment. I don't know. All I know is this. We don't question the judgment of man, but why do we not trust the judgment of God? You cannot avoid the whole thought here. This is election. And we must understand that we cannot avoid the election. And surely we must not compromise on this subject because some oppose it. Furthermore, we cannot reconcile God's sovereign election with man's free will. Both are true. We cannot intrude into the mysterious dealings of God, but we can trust him to act in justice. We must take the Scripture at face value. And I say to you today, I'm a little creature down here on this earth, and he could take my breath away from me in the very next moment. I'm a creature, and he's God. And I've got the nerve enough to stand on my two feet, look him in the face, and question what he does. May I say to you, that is rebellion of the worst sort. 
Oh, I bow today to my Creator and my Redeemer, knowing that whatever the choice He's made, that's His choice. And by the way, if you don't like it, why don't you move out of His universe? Go over and start one of your own. I told a hippie that down here in San Diego. I said, why don't you move out of the universe if you don't like the way God's running it? Start your own. <laughs> then you can make your own rules, but as long as you're in His universe... You're going to play it according to his rules, my friend. And little man needs to bow that stiff neck today and bow those stubborn knees before Almighty God and say, there is no unrighteousness with God. This is important, friends. Now, will you notice verse 15? He follows on. He saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And God said to him, I'll show it to you, Moses, but I'm not going to show it to you because you are Moses. You know, Moses might come and say, well, I want you to show me your glory because I'm leading the children of Israel out. I'm a pretty important fellow around this place. God says to him, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'll do this for you. Not because you're Moses, but because I'm God. And you know why he saved me? Not because I'm Vernon McGee, but because he's God. And he made the choice. And I just bowed before him. Verse 16 now. Listen to this. This is important also. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. You see, God's mercy is not extended as a recognition of human will. Nor is it a reward of human work. Human willing and human working are not motivating causes of God's action. Man thinks that his decision and his effort caused God to look with favor upon him. This is not a denial of human responsibility. I think that Stifler stated it succinctly when he said, "...willing and running may indicate the possession of grace, but they are not the originating cause." God extends mercy, and he does it because he's God, friends. And who are you to question him? I bow before him today. Now, the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God says he used Pharaoh, but somebody says he was not elected. He sure wasn't. Just think of the opportunities God gave him. And he would have told you, I'm Pharaoh. I make the choices around you. I make the decisions. I reject letting the children of Israel go. God says, you may think you will, but you're going to let them go. God's will is going to prevail. But may I say to you, Pharaoh made his own decision. And all that God did, and I'll not go into all this as I did in the book of Exodus, God made these decisions on one basis and one basis alone. My friend, he brought this man and made him make the decision that was in his heart. God forced him to do the thing that he wanted to do. No lost man is ever forced to do the thing he doesn't want. There'll never be a person in hell that's not there because they chose to be there, my friend. You are the one that makes the decision. This is something that is tremendous. When man goes the length of making to himself a God whom he affects to bind by his own rights, 
God then puts on his majesty and peers in all his reality as a free God, before whom man is a mere nothing like the clay in the hand of the potter. Such was Paul's attitude when acting as God's advocate in his suit with Jewish Phariseeism. This is the reason why he expresses only one side of the truth. And then here is Nagel's tremendous poem. You cannot put one little star in motion. You cannot shape one single forest leaf, nor fling a mountain up, nor sink an ocean. Presumptuous pygmy, large with unbelief, you cannot bring one dawn of regal splendor, nor bid the day to shadowy twilight fall, nor send the pale moon forth with radiance tender, and dare you doubt the one who's done it all. And the thing that's important is God is God. And you won't change that, my friend. And now Paul uses this expression of the potter and the clay. God is the potter. We're clay. God took man of the dust of the earth and formed him. And he didn't make a monkey. <laughs> man made a monkey of himself. But God didn't make him like that. And God is the one that is in charge today. He's God, my friend. And he rides triumphant in his own chariot, and he's not stopping for your green light, or man's green light today. Oh, to follow his chariot today. We have here the choice of Gentiles in the Scripture prophecies of God. And this is the last division of the chapter. Paul has made it very clear that the nation Israel was chosen by the sovereign will of God and not because of their merit. It was in the sovereign purpose of God. And he made it very clear that it's not the him that willeth or him that worketh, but it's God that showeth mercy. And thank God for that today. And now, he's not only chosen a nation and not only saved those in that nation that turn to God, and it's the remnant always, but among the Gentiles... He's calling out a people today to his name. I'm reading verses 25 and 26. As he said also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now, this is a prophecy from Hosea, refers to the nation Israel. And Peter refers the prophecy to the believing remnant in his day, which perpetuated the nation. He says to his people that had turned to Christ, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, to show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this prophecy from Hosea, actually it's verse 26 here, and it comes from Hosea 1.10, refers to Gentiles. And any place on the earth, Gentiles who turn to Christ now and in the future, as James put it in Acts 15.17, that the residue of man might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, 
who doeth all these things. So God reached into Europe. He didn't send the gospel into Europe because the people in Europe were superior people. I think there are some of us who are members of the white race. We somehow or another think that we're the superior people. We're not. The Chinese were way ahead of our ancestors at that time. My ancestors, I have an ocean yours, were there in the forests of Europe, of Germany. One branch of my family is over in Scotland. I'm told they were the dirtiest, filthiest savages ever been on this earth. Do you think that God carried the gospel to them because they were superior? Why, my friend, they weren't. They were anything but that. It's not to him that willeth or worketh, but it's God that showeth mercy. And I thank him for that. How wonderful it is. Now Paul again quotes, this time from Isaiah, in the 27th, 28th verses. And I'm reading now. Isaiah also cried, and it was in anguish, over Israel. If the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant only shall be saved. For he, that is the Lord, will execute his word upon the earth, finishing and cutting it short in righteousness. And this is a tremendous quotation that Paul gives from the 10th chapter of Isaiah, verses 22 and 23. Only the remnant of Israel will be saved in the great tribulation period. If you want to see the percentage, there are approximately 15 millions of the nation Israel today. In the Great Tribulation, we know only 144,000 are sealed. That's a pretty small ratio, by the way. Now, I do believe there'll be others saved during that period, but 144,000 will be as witness. It will be a small percentage. But that's the remnant. Always been that way with them. It's always been that way with Gentiles. Now, don't ask me why. <laughs> it's God that showeth mercy. And the very fact he just saves one reveals the mercy of God, because none of them deserve it. None of us do. Verse 29, And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we'd been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Paul, quoting here from Isaiah 1, 9, this is a startling statement, but it's a fitting climax to the sovereignty of God. Even the elect nation would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and depravity and rebellion to God if God had not intervened in sovereign mercy and recovered a remnant. What an indictment of proud Phariseeism and proud church membership today. Only God's mercy keeps any of us from going to hell, my beloved. Only God's mercy. Verse 30. Now we come here to something that is quite interesting. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. This is a thrilling statement. Gentiles who did not will or run, no willing or working, he found righteousness in Christ because God worked and God willed it. The Old Testament scriptures had prophesied it. You see, Isaiah had said, that Gentiles were to be saved. Verse 31, But Israel, pursuing after a law which should give righteousness, did not arrive at such a law. This is a terrifying statement. The Jews tried to produce a righteousness of their own through the Mosaic system. They didn't produce it. 
Look at the nation today. Religious people are the most difficult people in the world to reach today. Church members are. Those that think they're good enough to be saved. But my friend, you'll never be able to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But Paul is making it very clear here that if you're going to be saved, it's your responsibility. It's whosoever will may come. And him that cometh to me I'll in no wise cast out. You can come. <laughs> and don't stand on the sidelines and say, I'm not elected. You are in the race, whether you like it or not. But I never heard of anybody being elected who didn't run. <laughs> got to run for the office. If you want to be saved, you're the elect. If you don't, you're not. And that's all I know about it. I can't reconcile it. This happens to be God's universe, and he just didn't let me in on this. But I've come to the place in the sunset of life, I can say today, God is sovereign, and he's going to do this according to his will. And his will is going to be right, and there's no unrighteousness with him. He won't make a mistake. Our government may have made a mistake years ago in this decision you know, about going into Vietnam. Maybe it was a blunder, and people believed in him. My friend, why don't you believe in God? <laughs> he doesn't make a mistake. He's righteous. He's good. And he doesn't even ask you to vote for him, <laughs> because he's not running for office. He's already in office. And he's not responsible to anyone but himself. He's not responsible to the elect. He is only responsible to his own character, and whatever God does is right. Now we come to chapter 10, and we see God's present purpose with Israel. And here we have the present state of Israel, and that is lost. That's their condition today, just as the Gentiles are. And the reason is, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now he turns from the Sovereignty of God to the responsibility of man. He did that back in verse 30 in the last chapters we saw. And now he pursues that. Listen to it. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. They are responsible, you see. They are responsible to God. And we read, let me give you our Lord's word in Luke 19, 43 and 44. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy salvation." are thy visitation. Now, that's the condition of the nation over there. They, they're surrounded by Arab nations. They want to push them into the sea. Now, why? Well, you can blame the Arab. You can blame Russia. You can blame everybody. You can blame God if you want to, because God says that the reason they're in the state they're in today and can't have peace there, they did not recognize their time of visitation. So Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, I want you to see something here. There are 
three great statements that you can draw from this word here. And Bengal makes this statement. He says, Israel, with all they possessed of religion, they were not saved. They needed to be saved. They had religion, but they didn't have righteousness. That's religion today. I would say today, probably 75% of church members, they're not saved. Friends, they're just members of a religious club. That's all. And they're in rebellion, actually, against God, because they won't accept the righteousness that he offers in Christ. You can be religious and be lost. Israel had a God-given religion. We saw back in chapter 9, all they had, they had more than anyone's ever had. But they were lost, Paul says. My heart's designed prayer to God for Israelis. They might be saved. Number two, they were savable. Again, Bengal says, Paul would not have prayed had they been altogether reprobate. And they weren't. They were savable. Who would ever thought our ancestors, yonder in Europe, were savable. Why, the Chinese had a civilization at that time. Why didn't the missionaries go in that direction? Why didn't the apostles say, not these pagan Gentiles over here? They're not even savable. But they were, my friend. And the Chinese had a civilization at that time. Now, the third thing. They are on the same plane before God as Gentiles and should be evangelized as other people without Christ. There's no difference today. All is sin. Come short of the glory of God. This idea of a superior race or an inferior race. At the foot of the cross, it's all level ground, friends. I don't care who you are. Your social position, your church membership, your good works, your white skin, that won't help you. <laughs> You are a hell-doomed sinner without Christ. And God is just and righteous when he says that to you. And right now, if you're unsaved, the cockles on the back of your neck are sticking out a foot. Because you say, I don't like what that preacher is saying. Now, this preacher's not saying it. God is saying it, my friends. And God is putting it in neon lights here. He doesn't want you to miss it. And this is a tremendous statement. There are those today that believe that the gospel ought to go to Israel first. I think what Paul meant was actually chronologically, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Why, did you know for the first few years in the city of Jerusalem and in Israel, there was not a Gentile saved? You wouldn't have made it had you been there, friends. Church is 100% Jewish at that particular time. And today there's some think, well, we ought to go first to the Jew. I don't agree with that. But I'd also want to add to it, you better not leave him out. He's in the plan and purpose of God, and he should have the gospel today. And I disagree, especially if a man like Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr, back in Time magazine, he's reported to have said, this was April the 21st, 1958, and I took the quotation out at that time. He says, do not try to convert Jews. Jews may find God more readily in their own faith than in Christianity. And he just maintains this viewpoint. So he says, especially because of the guilt they're likely to feel if they become Christian. That's when you get rid of the guilt, my friend. May I say to you, 
They should have the gospel. All people should have it because God is prepared to show mercy today. Now, Paul goes on to say, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Why, I know some churches where their business termites. On Monday night, it's basketball. Tuesday night, it's football. Wednesday night, it's volleyball. And Thursday night, it's baseball. And Friday night, they just have a ball. But they got something going every night. They have a zeal for God. And they always like to do it in the name of Jesus, you know. <laughs> All they got's religion. My friend, do you have Christ? Have you accepted the righteousness that he offers in Christ? You can't be saved on any other basis. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. And I have news for you. You're not perfect. And I'm not perfect, but I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. And he was buried and he rose again. And he was delivered for my offenses, but he's been raised for my justification, my righteousness. He's perfect. I'll go to heaven because he took my place. Do you have him today as your Savior? For goodness sakes, forget your church membership for a while. I don't mean to minimize church membership, but don't trust it. The average church today is dead as a dodo bird. Fella said to me some time ago, I'd just soon go out and play golf on Sunday. And I'd go with you. I'm retired now. He said, McGee, you don't mean you'd do a thing like that? No, I said, really, I don't think I would. But I'll be honest with you. I think I'd probably be more spiritual out there than I'd be in some churches today. You know why? Because I might get a good shot. Might even get a hole in one. And I tell you, friends, that would carry me up to the heights. May I say to you today, do you have Christ? That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, get rid of everything else and to hold on to him. Now, Paul goes on here. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, that was true of Israel. It's true today of the average church member. This lack of discernment, Dr. Griffith Thomas commented on it. He says, Is it not marvelous that people can read the Bible and all the time fail to see its essential teaching and its personal application to themselves? There's scarcely anything more surprising and saddening than the presence of intellectual knowledge of God's Word with an utter failure to appreciate its spiritual meaning and force. And I have seen men, officers in the church, carry a Bible so big under the arm that they leaned in that direction when they walked down the street. And I watched them for 21 years. They never growed one inch. They just didn't grow. That's all. May I say to you, no discernment whatsoever. Not even able to really discern what it means to be saved today. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. He's the goal. And he made it clear. He said, I didn't come to patch up an old garment. I came to give you a new garment, the robe of his righteousness. Now, the law was given 
to bring men to Christ. It wasn't given to save them. Paul could say to the Galatians in 3.24, the law is our schoolmaster. It was a servant that took us by the hand to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was not given to save us. It showed that we needed to be saved. took us by the hand and brings us to the cross and says, little fellow, you need a savior. You need to be saved. That's the important thing. And the law came to an end in Christ. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. Paul said that again in Galatians 5, 4. The law is no more rule of life than it's a means of righteousness. It's to everyone that believes. That suggests both the freeness and the universality of salvation to everyone that believeth. Everyone, universal, believeth all the freeness of it. Why don't you accept it? Now you have the present standing of Israel, verses 5 through 12. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. Granted that you could attain a righteousness in the law, it would be your own righteousness and not God's. You'd never measure up to his. And in verse 6, Paul says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this right. And then he talks about ascending up to heaven to bring it down, or going down to hell and bringing it up. Well, my friend, that righteousness that Paul talks about, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, that righteousness is available to you today. You don't have to make a trip anywhere. Right where you're sitting. A great many folk think they've got to come down front in some sort of a meeting to be saved. Right where you are right now. Some of you in a car, riding along. Some of you in your home. Some of you at a place of business. And there's some funny places people listen to this broadcast. We have letters that tell of the most peculiar places. Right now, I imagine there's a little mother up yonder in Alaska. Maybe snowed in by now, I don't know. And then out in the Hawaiian Islands, I know of a little Japanese pastor. Doesn't have but about 15 members. He's translating this to his people out there. Whoever you are right now, it's available to you. All you have to do is to accept it by faith. How wonderful the mercy of God is today. It's the, the one who shows mercy. Don't tell me this is something terrible. It's wonderful. It is wonderful today. Now, he makes this statement that is so abused today. I think that a great many feel like you've got to make a public confession of faith. And that's not what he's saying here. And let's understand what he's saying that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Now, will you look at that with me for just a moment? It does not mean to go forward in a public meeting in the church that I served. In 21 years, I saw many people come forward. They were not saved. Great many people think that if you make a public confession, all Paul is saying here, and it's very important to see 
What he's saying is this, that man needs to bring into agreement his confession and his life. Now, the mouth and the heart should be in harmony. They'd be saying the same thing, because it's with the heart that you believe. And heart here, I think, means total personality, your entire being. But you see, there are people that say something with their mouth. They give lip service to God. But their heart, God says, the Lord Jesus says, their heart's far from me. Now, all he's saying here is this, that you be dead sure that when you make a public confession, if that's what you think it means, that your heart is right along with you and that you're not just saying some idle words that mean nothing today. And there's a great deal of that. If there is confession without faith, it's due either to self-deception or to hypocrisy. And if there's faith without confession, it may be cowardice. It seems to me that Paul is saying here what James said. And he's saying James is accurate. Faith without works is dead. And if you're going to work your mouth, be sure you've got the faith in your heart, my friend. That's what he's saying here. And it means that the resurrection is the heart of the gospel. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. Now, verse 11, and we're here now. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And what he's saying here, they'll not need to make haste, or not be confounded. It's the same word, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what he's saying here, it's a by-faith righteousness, and it's taught in other passages of the Old Testament. And this passage also shows the universal character of salvation, because the important word here, after all, is this, whosoever believeth in him. Doesn't need to make haste. Never be confounded. It's faith in Christ that's important. Now, verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek today. That is, for the very fact of the matter, in this age, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. All, if they're to be saved, must come the same way to Christ. No man cometh to the Father, the Lord Jesus said, but by me. You can't go by the ritual of the Old Testament. You cannot go by the law. You have to come today. It doesn't make any difference what your race is. You come the same way by faith, and it's offered on the same basis of mercy by faith. That is the proposition Paul is putting down here. Now, he says the present salvation is for both Jew and Gentile. Now, he's opened that subject up. Hear and believe the gospel. Listen to verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Paul is actually turning to the Old Testament. There are eight quotations from the Old Testament in this chapter, and 30 quotations in this division, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the quotation logically follows verse 12. 
but it makes very clear that both Jew and Gentile are called on the Lord. Not do something for salvation. All you have to do is call on him, friends. To call upon the Lord means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, it's necessary to understand, appreciate Paul's position here. His own people hated him as the apostle, but they applauded Paul or Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, and he's showing here the logic of his position. They rejected his claim or the right to any of the apostles to proclaim a gospel that omitted the Mosaic system, which had degenerated into Judaism. Now, Paul shows that there must be messengers of the gospel who have credentials from God. And Paul began his epistle with the claim, he says, Paul, a called apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that follows here this logical sequence. Preachers must be sent in order for people to hear that they might believe. They did not know how to call upon God. And Paul pinpoints all on believing. And this, therefore, necessitated his ministry. And that is the thing that he's saying here. And he's quoting, by the way, from Isaiah about how beautiful are the feet of those. I very frankly feel like this radio program is important. I'm giving the rest of my life to it, to get out the word. But when he quotes, you are beautiful of the feet. Now, I'm down here making tapes today, and better not tell you the time, because I found out that people think I'm there at the time they hear it, and I may even be in their neighborhood at the time. But I do not even have on any socks today. I'm just sitting down here in my study, in my bare feet, if you want to know the truth. And I've just looked down here at my feet, and they're not beautiful, friends. One of the things about feet is that they are not an object of beauty. But here is something Dr. Lang said. In their running and hastening, in their scaling obstructing mountains, and in their appearance and descent from mountains, they are the symbols of the earnestly desired wing movement and appearance of the gospel itself. And that's one of the reasons that... I love the opportunity of radio today. We can scale mountains. We can go over the plains and vast expanse of sea and water. And we can go into the inner recesses of the earth today with the gospel. And we can go into the homes, into the automobiles, into the businesses. And we found that we've been in some unusual places. We've been in bar rooms with the gospel by radio. Oh, may I say to you, that's what he means, that it's wonderful to get the Word of God out. Now, verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? And we rejoice here on radio the number that write in and tell us they've accepted Christ, and it's amazed us how many. But when you look at the total picture, it's really a very small percentage, by the way. Who has believed our report? Now he goes on and says, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And friends, 
I come back to this. I think this is God's method. I may sound like a stuck record to you, but I must say this. I believe that it's not actually by preaching philosophy or psychology or some political nostrum, but I believe that today it's the preaching of the Word of God. It's not what I think. It's what the Word of God says. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing by the Word of God. And until you hear the Word of God, you can't be saved. Oh, how important that is. Verse 18, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. I would not want to say that Paul had this in mind, because I don't think he did. And I don't think that it has reference to radio. But I do want to say this. It sure has application there that the sound has gone out today. And it's a marvelous way of getting the Word of God out. And you don't have to listen to it. Probably a very small percentage do. And I'm amazed that anybody listened to us, but they do. And we believe that God today will bless his word. Now, will you notice, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I'll anger you. And he's quoting here, of course, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. And what he's doing today is just simply this. God is calling out a people among Gentiles today. And he's going to develop that in the next chapter, by the way. Verse 21, But to Israel he saith all day long, Have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And have you ever stopped to think how tiresome it is just to hold your hands out? You try that. Just hold your hands out. See how long you can do it. That's the most tiring thing in the world that you can do. Just hold your hands out. You remember Moses went and prayed for Israel, and Aaron had to prop up his hands because he got tired holding them up toward God. But God says, I've been holding out my hands to a disobedient people. No one knows how gracious God has been to the nation Israel. And Stephen's final word to this nation is revealing. He says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not confined to just those people. That could be said today, that he's holding out his hands today to a gainsaying world. I marvel at the patience of God. I'll be honest with you, and I do not mean to be irreverent. If I was running this show today, this little earth down here, I'd make a lot of changes. I tell you, I'd move in. But you know, he's just holding out his hands to a gainsaying world today.